I'm Nareet Ben. This is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with inspiring women from all different fields and backgrounds, how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. This week, Michelle Morgan takes us inside her path into marketing, branding, and strategy, how she found a space to create real impact and do what we're all looking for, find some personal meaning in her work. It started out with ditching the pre-med track in favor of fashion closets at glossy magazines she always dreamed of. But following more of what she calls conscious decisions led her to working on high-profile inclusive campaigns for Dove and the Crown Act, legislation helping put an end to hair discrimination, especially for black women. She talks about rerouting her direction along the way, why working at an ice cream shop taught her skills that paid off big in her career, playing a role in changing standards of beauty, and finally getting comfortable and confident with her natural hair. Michelle Morgan, thank you very much for getting up bright and early to join us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to meet you. Me too. Me too. It took us a little time of back and forth to make it happen. So finally success. And I'm looking forward to it too. I've wanted to first start with the thing that kind of is the obvious that everybody is talking about still the COVID year and, you know, pandemic, how it's been for you now with things, you know, slowly but surely going back to normalcy. Have you had a chance to sort of take a little bit of distance or reflect on what it's been like for you? I mean, if it has had impact beyond the obvious, you know, (laughs) stuck at home in front of a computer kind of thing. Yeah, I think this past year has been, of course, really crazy and trying, obviously, with mentally and physically. But I think the silver lining with COVID has definitely been taking that step back or having a slower pace of life. Yeah, I was very ambitious in college. So I went to college, I did the internships in the summer. Before I graduated senior year, I had a job in New York because that was like my goal. That's what I wanted to do. And I had moved right after graduation to New York. That's been about almost 10 years. And since that, I really didn't go home too much. I went home for like Christmas or like the holiday season. But this is the first time. Did you just feel like you couldn't, like you couldn't take the time off? Yeah, or just like the rush of the city and trying to get ahead in my career. I was focusing all my time and effort to be in the city to do that. And with that, I wasn't really going home to family as much, maybe twice a year. And this is the first time I'm actually calling you from my parents' bedroom in Chicago. I've been here for about a year, just staying with my parents and knowing that we were all working remotely. I stayed through the lockdown in New York City and just needed to get out. Yeah. Being in a a New York City apartment in lockdown or in any apartment is not easy. Yeah. So now that I'm here, it's giving me some time to really think and decompress, not running to like a happy hour after work or trying to get in a project over time late at the office. So it's really started to make me think about my values a little bit differently. And maybe if things are flexible in the future, I can stay at my parents for like two weeks and come back instead of always trying to hop to the next place. Yeah, I think that's completely a silver lining for a lot of people, of course, who, you know, were spared by COVID itself to have that time to reflect on what's really important and to see actually that if we don't do all of that, what you're talking about, you know, like the nonstop plus the drinks after work and that actually the world doesn't fall apart if we take two weeks away and and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think one thing that's interesting is like because of COVID, everyone had a completely different situation than what they brought to the office prior. Right. And so I noticed that the conversations that I've had with my coworkers have 
been more vulnerable as well. Like you'll see the kid in the screen and the mom trying to like sure. both or even just talking with a coworker who's single and, and has that city life. And sometimes it's been hard. Sometimes it's been ups and downs and like now it's okay to kind of admit that or now it's okay to be like, I'm having a really crappy week. Yeah. So I hope that doesn't change in terms of being more honest with the people that you see day. <laughs> yeah, I think also in terms of hoping it doesn't change, that's the big thing that's going to be going forward. Like anything, anytime you go through something that can be a little bit life-changing is how do you preserve that? Like, you know, the things that you took from it or the lessons learned or, you know, the new values, like you say, how do you keep that when other things go back to normal? Because we adapt so quickly. And I think it is really important to try to preserve that state where there's a little bit less BS around everything and a little more to the core of what matters to each of us. So yeah, but that's interesting in terms of interactions at work. Anyway, I could go on and on about this, but let me get to your story and your search for, I think, meaning in your own work, which it sounds like you found through some really interesting projects, but you'll you'll tell me in your own words. But talk to me from sort of briefly in the very beginning, because I think how we grow up ends up having an impact on what we do or why we do it for better or worse. And whether we know it or not, sometimes it takes a while to realize that. So what was growing up like for you in that sense? Like what kind of kid were you or what kind of environment? Um, I would say very curious kid. Um, my parents work in the professional field. My mom is a doctor and my dad is a computer engineer. So they really valued education. And so I liked to play with Barbies and American Girl dolls, but I also would get science kits and, you know, get the catalog for a space camp and really want to go and ask my parents. Never went, but um, I was really also into like the science part. I thought that was really cool. And I guess kind of a dreamer. I, I would always like to play with my friends and make a band or um, make a fake magazine or a zine or something. Fake magazine is a good hint as to yeah. <laughs> a, a little seed planted early. I think it's interesting. We can look back and say random things we did for pleasure, obviously, how that actually in retrospect is a little bit of a hint of where we ended up. Yeah. My, my dad's a scientist also. So I grew up with a lot of science fairs and science, everything and emphasis on academics. Was that a kind of requirement kind of feeling like that's a path you had to go down or certain things were more valued than others or not so much? Yeah. I mean, my parents definitely valued like business, science, math, a job, something like that. I always had like dreams of doing something creative. I wanted to be an actress. So I went to Broadway camp every other summer. I liked to do art. So I got an art kit, but they also wanted to instill in me like you need to have a good career that is stable. They didn't want me to be a starving artist or anything like that. Right. So they did steer me sometimes towards, you should think about a, a business degree or a, yeah. something in science and stuff. All like the, that. the super practical stuff. Yeah. So I, I feel like that plays out in your undergrad because you did both pre-med, right? Which is the ultimate practical, hardcore thing to do. Yeah. And also journalism, is that it? Yeah. Again, I'm also a person that it's very passionate and I, I work hard for what I, I really want. So the pre-med thing was actually very much spontaneous. Um, we were sitting in orientation and they were asking us, okay, fill in your major. And I definitely wanted journalism. I definitely wanted a minor in maybe international relations because I loved geography. I loved learning about different cultures. So I, I put that on the paper and the proctor was coming around and just like answering questions. And I saw pre-med in the checkbox and I was like, my mom's a doctor and it's probably 
more practical and I could change it later. And I just checked the box. I, I was, okay, I'll do pre-med. We'll see how it goes. Oh man. I don't think that pre-med and spontaneous are two things that normally go together. <laughs> that's quite a split second decision, but I guess yeah. that's that, that part saying like, I, I need something reliable, practical. Yeah. What drew you to journalism though? Like what made you think that's what you want to do? I just always, always loved reading magazines. I would get them because they would just come free in our mailbox and I would just always pour into them and read them as a kid, as a teen. I was obsessed with fashion. So the reason I wanted journalism was because I wanted to be a fashion editor. I did um, little programs in high school. It was like a Nordstrom mini internship. I did a class in high school with fashion merchandising. So my ultimate goal was, how do I become a fashion editor? And so that's why I picked journalism. I also had a complete obsession with fashion magazines, which was very sad when I moved overseas and suddenly Vogue cost like $20 a piece and I had to end that habit. But I followed that uh, eventually at some point to working at GQ also, which shared a floor with Teen Vogue, which I know you were at too. So maybe we somehow crossed paths at some point. But that came up for me. And I think that comes up for a lot of people as the question of like, what is something that you love as a hobby? And what is something that is really much more than that and something that can fulfill you long term. For me, for example, I think magazines ended up being much more of a personal side love versus something that I felt like was right for me Mm -hmm. for a career. Like, how did you explore? I know you explored that also with internships. What was the reality like versus the dream? I started doing internships probably sophomore year of college. And of course, they were unpaid in New York City. And I didn't care. Not that anybody needs any money to live in New York City as a young (laughs) student who's also paying a billion dollars a year to study. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I really don't care. I have an internship at Cosmo. And that was my first major one. I did a few in Chicago and I would just take the train up and take it back home. But this was in New York City and I did not care what I had to do. I got it. So the reality was, you know, it is a lot of picking up coffee or organizing shoes all day. But it really gave me a view into like, let me at least observe what the actual editors are doing. Let me observe how a story is put together. That's what I wanted to understand. So it really peeled back that layer for me because I was always just looking at it from afar. Yeah. And seeing the final product, which is always like in any job or anything, it's very different than what actually goes into it in the process. Yeah. Tell me a bit about then your road to figuring out your path in those years, first starting out in fashion. So I had done a bunch of internships in college at Cosmo, W, Vogue. I was getting up to second semester of senior year when everyone's starting to say where they're going next and what they're going to be doing as a career. And I really hadn't heard back from any jobs or any bites. And I got a random email from my W Magazine supervisor when I was an intern. And she said, we're looking for assistance. I know you're graduating soon. Would you be interested? The pay is low, but this is a great starting job. And I I took it. Within like two months of me graduating, I had a job that was ready for me and I was so excited. So I did that for a couple of years at W and I learned a lot and made a lot of great friends. A lot of people that we were stuck in a fashion closet for hours on end and you just bond. And I really cherish those moments. Is there something you think like that's the kind of industry, especially with magazines like W and Vogue that have such a reputation and a sort of like an aura around them? Is there something that you would say to people who are kind of interested in that field that surprised you about the actual work when you're inside? I would say a lot of physical work. 
uh, that maybe you're not surprised about, like when people would come in fresh or a new person to the team and they're wearing heels and a skirt. And yeah, they're like, let's see how long that lasts. Yeah. You quickly learn, like as an assistant, you should wear just some nice jeans, a nice top, but you are going to be stuffing a trunk to get to Italy and you need to be physical Um, or pulling a huge trunk that weighs like 70 pounds. Like that's you and your team. So even though in the movie montage, there's like always five inch heels, like running around hailing cabs in New York, that's not actually sustainable. Yeah, not at that role. (laughs) Maybe when you get up, you definitely see the heels, but you will be running around the city. That's kind of how I learned the city, honestly, because I was always picking up things from Chanel or picking up things from Louis Vuitton in the subway or a cab. And that's kind of how I learned to navigate New York because I was always out doing errands. So it sounds like almost like the cliche of, you know, the fashion world dream in New York City. And it is something that you had thought about since you were a kid, but you left at some point. So what made you feel like, actually, this isn't the right thing for me and I need to pursue something that's, you know, a better fit? What was missing? So I had Moved on from W and I went to a regional magazine. It was called Niche Media. They did like luxury city magazines. And then I went to Wall Street Journal. It was an incredible publication, of course. And I did their off-duty, their fashion section. But I was feeling a little bit like, okay, I've been doing this for a couple of years. I'm still like at the assistant or the junior level. And I'm seeing that moving up isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do in fashion. It doesn't work in the same way if you were at an accounting firm. There's not like a clear step-by-step process. Is that what you mean? No, it's a lot of who you know, Mm -hmm. or if you have a good connection. I mean, that's how I got my first job. It wasn't hosted anywhere. I did an internship and I made a good impression and they emailed me. But that's kind of how it goes as you work up, even in your 40s, 50s. And I just knew that I don't have the means to be waiting on that. It's not sustainable to be working, you know, very low wages and grueling and just hoping that you would get the recognition. I needed a little bit more structure. And I was feeling like as much as I can be passionate about fashion, I can dress the way I want. But maybe there's another job for me that brings in analytical skills, is in media, and that's how I kind of turn towards marketing. That's really key, I think, to think ahead about not just how something sounds, because especially when you're at places like that, at W, at the Wall Street Journal, like the name almost can make you want to work there. Never mind the job. Like I think we can get swept up into how something sounds, but to actually really think about what kind of life it's going to give us, what kind of fulfillment it gives you. Sometimes it takes a while to get there. I mean, was it hard at all for you to to walk away, even though there's famously low wages and all that, like you're talking about, but still to walk away from brands like that and from the, the how it sounds of it all? Yeah, I think... At that point, I was just ready to to get out. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a tough job. Like you have to deal with very bold personalities. Yeah. Uh, as- I feel like you're, there are a lot of euphemisms here. <laughs> I was yeah. ready to get out and there are bold personalities. <laughs> I, I mean, like I, I made a, a lot of incredible um, connections. I made a lot of incredible friends and mentors. But in terms of getting to that point where I'm thinking, well, when I'm my mom's age, what am I going to do? Right. You know, I just didn't see a, a future in fashion that was long term for me that would get me fulfilled. So that's why. So I, how do you make the transition out of there? So I was on a contract job with Wall Street Journal. So it was ending. And so in the meantime, I was looking for what is my next job? And it wasn't going to be fashion postings or job postings. So I did a temp job at this marketing science firm. They did like uh, consumer studies Mm -hmm. and insights. And that was 
definitely something that was interesting, but not necessarily something I wanted to do. It was a lot of like looking at surveys and trying to figure out like what is the consumer's feelings on a Swiffer mop kind of thing. Yeah. But it gave me the experience to put on my resume to say, I've done something in media or something in marketing. How do I take this to a a longer term thing? And that's how I came to my first agency called Horizon Media, working with media advertising and buying. You know, now further inside advertising, which is another thing. It's kind of like this ubiquitous thing we're all exposed to. It's like a job title that everybody's kind of familiar with, but I don't think a lot of people actually know like what goes into it. So tell me a little bit about what the work itself is like and what made you want to stay in there? What made you feel like, okay, this actually strikes all those chords that's right for me or that I can find meaning in? Yeah. Um, when I got my first job as a media assistant, I really didn't have a clue what I was signing up for. Like, I think I just aced the interview and they were looking for a junior level position, but I honestly did not know what it was fully. Um, and media planning is really interesting that a lot of people should probably learn. So I don't necessarily make a commercial. I don't go out there and film and cast for a commercial. But what we do is manage investments for advertising and manage the strategy of how you will see it and what makes it interesting for a consumer. So that is what I really loved. You're working with the Facebooks and the TikToks of the world to figure out like what is the coolest way to show up. You're analyzing how something is performing in terms of clicks or views to see how you can do it better for the next campaign. You have the analytics and the creative, which are kind of two things that from from the get-go you were looking for. Yeah, it really fused both of those things together because again, when I grew up, I liked both of those sides. I liked doing art, but I also liked doing science projects. So this gave me a a taste of both and it felt like a long-term career I could make. How much is what you're doing now advertising wise about building relationships? Because I feel like now you're probably on the flip side, right? Of where you were at these high-end fashion magazines before. And and how do you build those relationships? Because that's a skill. That's something that we all need no matter what industry. Yeah. So in my position, I do strategy, which is the client-facing role. We're the people that the client goes to. Dove right now is my client. They're the person that I talk to the most. And if they have a question, I'm the first person they ask before they go to my wider team. So it really is about connecting with that person and figuring out what their true needs are, because they might just say, I need a campaign that makes me famous. I need a campaign that wants to be written in ad week. And you have to understand the whys underneath. How do you start to do that process of getting, that's interesting, just like what does someone need? Because again, that's relevant specifically, obviously to this campaign, but it's also to other things like trying to understand Mm -hmm. what's behind what someone is telling you or what someone's asking of you. Yeah. It's really about studying their business, knowing how their business works or what their challenges are or who their competition is that's on their heels. So I do my own research. I look at like the documents they provide to see where those challenges are, but also understanding, well, what are the goals? Okay, you want to go viral, but what does this mean? What would this mean for your business? Does it mean that more new customers would come? Does it mean that you're firming up your legacy for many years? So you have to understand the why behind, I just want to go viral, or I just want to be written about in magazines or something like that. 
Is that something you can ever apply, you think, to yourself or that you've ever thought about in terms of reverse doing on yourself in terms of what is my why for wanting to do a certain job or for wanting to, you know, be where I'm at? I feel like those are useful questions in terms of like, even with that example, like most people now, like if you talk to young kids, it's like, I just want to go viral. I just want to be famous. Like, okay, but what do you really want? Yeah, I think especially in the last few years. Um, I turned 31 this year. So that was a big milestone. <laughs> I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm in my 30s. What? In last year? I, I can tell you, I'm only, I guess, like four, four and some years older than you. But I can say everything everyone says is true in terms of perspective. Like I still remember, I vividly remember my 25th birthday. I was, I was living in New York because I lived in New York for about nine years. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm 25. I cannot believe it. Like what a milestone. I'm so old. And now I'm like, that is so ridiculous. But it continues. Like every time we feel that milestone, we feel like it's a huge deal or like maybe we're we're getting old. But then five years later, it's just like laughable. So yeah. I feel like I need to preserve that perspective as I go along that one day I will laugh at myself and realize actually I was so young and anyway, but I digress. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good perspective to have. Um, but when I turned 30, I was like, I'm in my 30s and I have to figure out like, life, <laughs> what do I want now? Like, yeah, what do I want in my life in and outside of my career? Um, so I, I do some reflection. I, I go to a therapist. So she helps me like think about things on a deeper level. And it's something that I'm really conscious about because I, I want to always make the right moves. And I know you can't really plan that out, but I, I want to be making conscious decisions so that when I look back on my life 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm not like, oh, I wish I would have done that. Or why didn't I just, why wasn't I thinking about that right. long term? I want to highlight that because I think the right move thing is something that I also have found myself you know, thinking about, I think a lot of people feel that pressure, like what is the right decision to make? What is the right path? I think my conclusion so far and from also a lot of conversations with a lot of different inspiring successful women is that there is no objective right path, right decision, that that doesn't exist. But what you're saying is the key to that is just making conscious decisions, not doing something just out of, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do next. This is what sounds the best. This is blah, 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 but actually something that you really think about and understand understand what's driving you and you know why you're making the move that you're making that's super important and you're seeing it now like i have friends that i thought would be in new york for the long haul or they were set in their career and what they were doing and with everyone moving around during covid one friend she learned that she could work remotely with her company and moved from Astoria to Hawaii. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, She's one of those people. They're like, oh, good idea. Why yeah, am I not idea. doing that? And are they hiring? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then another person, she works in magazines. She's a connection that I have through my job. And she now works farming. She bought a home upstate and now does like a little farm on her little land. And she's really passionate about that but she still works uh, for this magazine. So I think that's awesome that people can kind of just think about what do they really want and what makes them happy. Yeah, and for sure, getting out of the city has been a huge trend and made a lot of people reevaluate. Mm -hmm. Is it necessary to pay $4,000 a month for a tiny apartment yeah. just you know, to live in a certain place? Or can you actually, is it okay to have a lifestyle that maybe previously you didn't really even consider? Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, I think, what seems to be one of the most significant projects that you've worked on in terms of meaning. And that's just from the outside. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. But 
with Dove, this show us campaign, because advertising, when we think about it, it's a lot about selling people stuff, which is all over the place. And we're all bombarded with it all the time. But this is such a great example of how advertising can make a really big impact socially and just kind of on what we all absorb. Yeah, that probably is a big moment in my career in terms of projects that I've worked on. Something I'm really proud about because it hit close to home. We worked with magazines to change their imagery in terms of making it more inclusive for women and showing them in their authentic self. As I was working on that campaign, it reminded me of being a teenager and flipping through the magazines and not There's no makeup tutorial for my skin tone. I have darker skin. There's no hair tutorial for my kind of hair that is very coily and and curly. So I knew how important it was for the people that are reading now. It was incredible because usually we work with our marketing team. In a magazine, you're split between marketing and editorial. They don't really like talk to each other too much because you want to keep them unbiased when they're writing articles. But knowing uh, the magazine industry and also knowing how far we could push this, we said, we want to work with your marketing team, but we also want to talk directly with the editors and understand how they could help us craft stories that really were inclusive and were talking about the images themselves. So that's a lot to ask for from a partner and it doesn't always happen. So that's what made this campaign really unique because we went beyond just the cookie cutter placement or the cookie cutter sponsored article and really did something that was built for their pages and was unique to each magazine. It was five different magazines at Hearst, Cosmo, Harper's Bazaar, Oprah Magazine, and each one was built specifically for that tone of voice. How hard was it or not to get them fully on board? Did they get it fundamentally? Did they get why it's important or is this just like took a while to bring them to that place? Honestly, working with the editors, they were really open and really on board with this. It was just a campaign that they really felt passionate about and felt like there was a need. And they said, how do we work together? Some of the challenges came in with, you know, the editors would come in with their idea and it still has to be aligned with the brand. I have to bring it to my client to see if they're okay with it and feel good. But even that, I think best ways of working for any editorial article that gets pitched, you just had a different factor with a brand also being in the mix. What are some of the challenges or do you have any kind of like toughest moments, something that stands out in terms of those kind of situations, like managing people's expectations, trying to, especially working with powerful people who are maybe used to saying, this is what this spread is going to look like, period, by, and having people willing to change their minds? Yes, <laughs> that happens, especially in my role. That's part of your job description is like, okay, how do you steer them into a direction that makes sense for their brand, but also manages their expectations? Because sometimes they're not always familiar with how things usually work when it comes to a media planner and a publisher working together and what comes out of that. Yeah. So it's really, I've learned a lot of examples, a lot of like building a case for doing a project or building a case for building an activation is really important. You have to come with this not only looks cool, this is awesome, but here are the numbers behind it. Here's like a study that you will get after to make sure that there is some rigor there and to also ease their mind in terms of the value that they're getting as well. So it really is a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation, especially with partnerships. Yeah. But it brings out the best instead of just watching a commercial or seeing a banner ad online. Basically back yourself up, back your arguments up also with information that are going to help show people why your way is the right way. Yeah. 
Tell me a little about how you get connected to the Crown Act for people who aren't familiar with creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. This is a law uh, all about race-based hair discrimination. It's through Dove that you got linked up to this? Yeah, it was actually Dove. Dove is the sponsor for this bill, right? Not the sponsor, but they've really worked with legislation and different senators across different states to create this bill that would eradicate hair discrimination, particularly for Black women and Black males. And it's something that the Dove team is really excited about. This has been in the making for about two years, and we've crossed 11 states off our list. We still have quite a few ways to go. Yeah, but still, that's something. Yeah, the federal bill is the ultimate, which hopefully in the next year or two we'll be able to pass. But it's really different how a brand is not trying to sell a product, but trying to really shift and be a fundamental being in trying to change the way people are perceived in the workplace or at school. Yeah. How personal was this for you also? I mean, did you feel an intersection with things that you experienced yourself? Because it's in terms of finding meaning in work, that's usually when that happens, I think, when it's a little more personal. Yeah, I'm... I'm talking to you with my natural hair now, but if you've known me in the past three years, I've always worn like a weave or hair extensions. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that since like high school, college and so forth. And it was just something that I felt most confident in. I felt like the prettiest in and you know, there's a lot of different layers as to the whys, but that's what I felt most comfortable in. Did you and- feel like that was necessary in order to be quote unquote presentable in the workplace, like that's what was necessary to to get in the door even? Yeah. I mean, subconsciously, I would say that. I, I don't think I was like, I have to get my hair done because I won't get a job. Sure, sure. Not really explicitly, but it was something in the back of my mind, like I want to look my best. And my best is that standard beauty of long hair. Right. hair. Yeah. Most of those things are kind of like under the surface, yeah. you know, not conscious. Okay. I have to do X to get Y, but they're just things that we learn along the way or we're trained along the way to, to see. Yeah. And like, I've only started wearing my natural hair in the last year or maybe even in the last nine months because the hair salons were just closed. So I had to really sit down with myself and say, well, why am I freaking out? Why is this such a big deal for me to wear my natural hair? Some of my closest friends in New York haven't even seen me with my natural hair until now. Um, I was very secretive about it. Like I lived with roommates. So like on Friday night, I would take down my extensions, have an appointment Saturday morning because I knew that they were probably out and about. I could have the apartment to myself and get that done and be back home Saturday afternoon. No problem. So what has that been like to at first by force because of, you know, no hair salon, but then actually to come into your own, to where you're gorgeous, I have to say, because nobody can see us here, but to come into that space and be like, okay, no, this is me. And even though you've never seen me with my natural hair to sort of like reintroduce yourself to people in that way. Yeah. It took some time. Honestly, like I think it was easier to do it virtually because I didn't have to walk into a room and like just feel all the eyes or it felt like all the eyes were on me, but like just feel like in the spotlight and not have the confidence yet built 
to be able to stand there and be okay. And I know this sounds like maybe a mountain over a molehill or something, but for me, it was a big deal. And No, it doesn't. And it's such a fundamental thing. Like everyone has their own thing in that sense, but for sure, the whole issue around black hair and the understanding of what is presentable or not presentable. I mean, me coming from the TV world and TV news, I can tell you also like colleagues I had that felt like the hair always had to be straight. It always had to be a certain look. Mm-hmm. And it's been amazing seeing now I see it changing, even though I'm no longer at CBS News, for example, I see old colleagues wearing their natural hair on air, which is something that previously there was like a subtle or not so subtle, like you probably shouldn't do that kind of vibe. And that's that's super significant to have that change and to, to be able to do that. Yeah. So I feel like I'm still learning to really fully embrace it. There are days where I feel like, ugh, I don't like the way I look or I don't feel as pretty as I want to, but it's definitely gotten better. I like trying different headbands, different colors and all that. And it really makes me feel less pressure when I talk to people virtually because I don't have that self-conscious feeling right now. But like it did take some time to kind of reveal it on a meeting call with just a few of my coworkers and then work my way up to client meetings and in larger meetings with everybody. But I'm still learning. I think one thing that's really important that I want to express is that the bill is so important because it allows people the freedom to choose. So you don't have to wear your natural hair. Sure, sure. Yeah. Maybe in a year from now, I might go back to wearing a weave, but it it is the freedom of choice. That's what Dove is trying to unlock or trying to push forward. Yeah. And I imagine, like you're saying, if you want to go back to wearing a weave, it's going to be for different reasons, just because you feel like it, which is completely, you know, within your rights and not because you feel like it's necessary or, you know, you can't wear your natural hair because it won't be accepted in some way, which is a totally different scenario. Same weave, different scenario. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a beautiful intersection of your work and your own life, which was always the dream, I think, to find meaning in our work in a way that hits a little bit deeper. Before I let you go, I want to hear a little bit about, well, first of all, mentorship, because you've been talking a lot about relationship building and networking that you have to know the right people. Did mentorship help you along the way or did you feel like you have to figure it all out yourself? I think because there was no roadmap for me, like I couldn't lean on my parents for what's the next step in a fashion career or a media career. Yeah. Um, I did have to learn it myself in a way. And it, there was a lot of research and asking people and getting on the phone. But I think There are two mentors to me that really stuck out in my life, in my fashion life. And now Carla Martinez was like the uh, fashion director at W Magazine. And I think that I really formed a connection with her and somebody I looked up to. She was a Latina, one of the few fashion editors who was a person of color. And I think that she was really helpful in terms of giving advice or just being kind in the office and somebody that I still like talk to every so often now. And one mentor that's really personal to me now in my advertising career, his name is Chris McCraw. He's been my boss at my current agency for a long time. And he really pushed me to be the best advertiser that I am today. He's very particular, but he's also always open and giving me advice and somebody that I don't know if I would be as good as I am now if I didn't have him as my boss and mentor and somebody that I fully trust. 
Yeah. Those people are so important to have along the way. And did those happen naturally for you or along the way, did you learn a little bit more about how to actually try to seek out mentorship? I think those were really natural for me. There were people that were already supervising my work in some shape or form, but the connection that I made with those people are much deeper, I think. And that just takes time. And um, of course, honest conversations um, when you are doing great and when you're not doing so great to really learn from them. But if you're seeking a mentor and you don't have it yet, I would suggest like looking up people that you admire and it doesn't have to be like the CEO of a company, but somebody that has a job, maybe two or three steps ahead of you and reach out to them on LinkedIn or send them an email and see if they're open to a a 20 minute virtual call. Yeah. I think people are more open to giving advice than you would think. A hundred percent. I found that often. And I think a lot of times we can be reluctant to reach out to someone or feel like, okay, it's not my place. I don't know them. It's awkward, whatever. But I think people do love to give advice, especially if it's, you know, people are reaching out in good faith and just want to learn from them. I think it's always worth a shot for sure. Yeah. And people remember how hard it was for them in their early stages. So they're open to talking. Yeah. It makes people feel good to help, which helps all around Mm -hmm. if you're willing to take that step and reach out. So my last question for you is what I ask everyone. So for you at the ripe old age of 31, which I mean, (laughs) over the hill, let me tell you, just kidding. Anyway, at 31, still at least some perspective, if you were to sit down with your 20 year old self for coffee, you're starting out maybe, you know, around the time when you say, oh God, I got to check the Mm pre-med box also. What do you think you would want to tell her? I think I would tell her that you really can't plan too far in advance. You can't plan every step from assistant to director. There are going to be some zigzags along the way, but your North Star should be what really gives you passion and what really feels sustainable to you, what feels right. And use that as your North Star because it'll get you where you want to be. All the steps they've taken, like they seem kind of disjointed, magazines, fashion, pre-med, all this stuff. But it all those skills along the way have gotten me to this point. I love that. I I really agree with that. I think also for me, I felt like I have things that are kind of all over the place, like the very academic side, the very creative side, that just like jewelry news kind of all over the place. And a lot of times I would feel like I have to be in a certain box or what's the clear path? What's the clear narrative here? But also what I've heard from women across the board in so many different fields is that that range of different things ends up coming together beautifully and nothing is in vain. You know, you learn something at each experience, each experience helps you figure out the next thing, whether it's process of elimination or realizing you love it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically I just, <laughs> I show my support for that piece of advice. That's all. Thank you. I'll share one thing with that. I did learn a skill that was interesting and was out of the box because I wasn't making that much money starting out in advertising. I got a second job at Sprinkles. It was like an ice cream shop in the city and I would moonlight that. I didn't tell anyone I was doing a job from seven to midnight <laughs> after work. But I did that for about three or four years. And I learned so much in terms of talking to people, to talking to Upper East Side moms or talking to the person coming from SoulCycle. And I learned that you know, you're not selling ice cream. That's the last thing that the person wants. You're selling an experience. You're selling a connection. That person just wanted to talk or celebrate a new job. So it's learning the why underneath that helps me talk to other people in my now advertising career. 
I love that. No experience and no job is for nothing. There's always something you can take out of it if you're looking for it. There was a woman I met along the way at one of my internships who told me, if you look at it the right way, you are always in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, Michelle Morgan, I'll let you get on with your day and maybe have your morning coffee since I <laughs> forced you to join me so early. Thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through your own journey. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's been really nice talking with you. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you're on Apple Podcasts and send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. Coming up next week, you might know Adina Sussman from her best-selling cookbook, Sababa, or from Cravings, her wildly successful collaboration with Chrissy Teigen, or as the woman who's helped make vibrant Middle Eastern cooking accessible to the masses. But none of it came overnight. We caught up with her amid work on her next book. Nobody is looking at you. Everyone is thinking about themselves. So think about yourself and do what you want to do because you never know when time is going to escape you. And also like people are not that focused on what you're up to. They're focused on what they're up to. Thanks as always to our super producer, Talia Golihov. I'm Narit Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.